<clears throat> Hello. How's everyone doing? All right. How are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. Good. Um, yeah. Uh, I um, we've just gone into lockdown again in Melbourne. Oh, really? Mm, it just got announced. I think like half an hour ago. So that's a bit of a bit. Mm. I swear, I read yesterday that you guys had had zero new cases. I know. We did. I thought I I thought I almost read it today. Yeah, it might have been today your time early uh, late last night. I yeah, might I have been. Swear. Yeah, for me, I felt like today yesterday. And yeah. Then, yeah. Suddenly, we've had six or more cases, so we're going into lockdown for another week. Wow, that's terrible. Mm. So that's a bit sort of ah, uh, that's good that you yeah. That's good. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've had a few friends who've had it clear and said they got a bit wiped out after they had their vaccine. Yeah, so I'm just sort of like, oh, it's not a big deal one week, but I was sort of looking forward to this weekend a, a, a bit, you know, just to kind of go and do a few things that I was meant to do. And Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So anyway, that's how it is. It's interesting to think about, isn't it? Um, from an anthropological point of view, seeing all these people um, protesting it and everything. I think I brought it up before, but like how biopower is at play and control society and all of this stuff. It's like, it's very interesting to be studying anthropology and learning of these new, you know, sort kind of um, ideas. Mm. while living in a historical moment that mm. kind of illustrates all of these things. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree. It's a pretty phenomenal time to be studying anthropology. And, um, yeah, there was a few moments in the bigger long lockdown. I was still sort of writing my thesis and I was like, oh, my God, this is just, like, really intense. <laughs> and my supervisor yeah. was just like, you have to remember, you know, like you, this is an amazing historical moment that's kind of, really interesting anthropologically yeah like, yeah um mm. but uh yeah anyway it, you're right <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> i've been um i've been thinking about it a lot recently because of the so i'm at 513 days mm. today and i was doing you know like last trimester i was doing things where we were asked to go out and you know, observe, do some ethnographic observations and stuff. Um, 
and I couldn't. So I had to do one, uh, an ethnographic study of space on my kitchen. Mm. And I was like, you know, like, okay, cool. <laughs> um, but it, it's kind of been really interesting for me to think of the culture shifting around um, like individualism, individualism, and how that's become really obvious in COVID mm. times. And I just, I'm like, oh, that, that overwhelming push of individualism is mm. very obvious. Mm. But. Yeah, it's a good point <laughs> to think about the nature of individualism as it relates to the way we're thinking about it, definitely. Yeah. I can't help but think about it. Um, the role no. of individual and individual rights and people um, using that as a way to kind of not do what they feel like is not right by them. So it's quite interesting, yeah. really. Mm. Crazy. Mm. <laughs> anyway, I've got a few more people kind of coming in, but um, I might just wait another minute and then we'll get into this um, paper by Mills. So... Um, Hopefully everyone's had a bit of a chance to, to look at it and have a think about it. This is quite a quite a really uh, quite a radical way to think about personhood. Really, um, quite interesting, I think. Anyway, um, so uh, I think there's probably enough of us just to maybe get started. I think. Um, so um, thanks everyone for coming. To the seminar today and so yeah we'll be talking a bit about um, the Mills paper and so I, I mentioned it in the lecture um, and so we'll just be sort of uh, you know giving it a bit more space here today in the seminar. So the first I, I thought uh, uh, a good way to kind of enter into this paper is to maybe think about um, one of the kind of central points that Mills is sort of making which is that uh, uh, Evans Pritchard sort of over, uh, well, he makes sort of witchcraft uh, exceptional in his writing. And I just wanted to kind of maybe uh, throw it out there to, to, to people just to, to see what if people understood what that kind of meant, what it means, the, the implications of making witchcraft exceptional, um, or if, um, and, and in thinking about that, what might be some of the examples that kind of speak to this idea that witchcraft is being um, made into an exceptional kind of phenomena amongst the Azandi. I can go. Uh, go, go. <laughs> yeah. um, so... When so I've done ASS 101 and last trimester, so that whole text I've poured over multiple times, um, and I kind of got the sense that it was made exceptional by Evans Pritchard um, by his differentiation in the first couple chapters of um, witches and non-witches. But then he kind of backtracks a little bit and says, well, everyone is, can have this power, but they don't, or they don't use it. And that's where this kind of exceptionalism took place. Um, and that kind of muddied the water on 
after reading this this journal entry by this uh, other guy, um, that kind of where it became muddied that the the witchcraft substance could only be found in witches. And the Zandi are like, well, no, everyone has it, but, you know, you use it. And it's kind of like to find another example of what witchcraft kind of became, I kind of relate it to psychopaths. Okay, psychopaths are the exception in our society. Um, everyone has the ability to be a psychopath, but they aren't. Some psychopaths don't act on their psychopathic nature, but if they do, they're pointed out and defined as a psychopath. The same could be applied to witches according to the abridged version of oracles. Um, you know, everyone has it. They might not know. They might not use it. But when they do, they can be identified and that becomes their defining person. They are witches then. Um, and that's an argument I made in, in my essays that you don't, in the same sense of making up people from Ian Hacking's point of view of dynamic nominalism, um, you know, they aren't something until you classify them as that. And that's how it became an exception. Being a witch became an exception. Where in the non-abridged version, I, I guess that Mills argued that's not exactly what even Evans Pritchard thought, but it was a way of making people who couldn't rationalize another form of rationality to accept that that was a form of rationality. Yeah, I think there's, you've raised some um, interesting points there. So, yeah, I think you're right. What you're saying is that, um, uh, you know, in the instance of you're talking about psychopaths or whatnot, or, um, you know, I think there's a real case to be made at the moment, um, you know, of sort of this over-diagnostic uh, of uh, behaviours in the West, um, um you know, and that's not to kind of put down anyone who has sort of mental health or whatnot, but you can, I've seen it, um, people sort of, um, you know, some some, some behaviours that might not be uh, completely out of the ordinary kind of then get swept up into these um, diagnostics and then it's made exceptional, right? Um, you know, uh, I think a lot of criticism has come from social sciences around the DSM-5 about doing that a little bit. And so I think the example that you're using there, yeah, so, um, and, and that might be the case for uh, witchcraft as well. So uh, uh, Mills is sort of saying that uh, Evans Pritchard is sort of um, assigning witchcraft to kind of exceptional circumstances, you know, to the really kind of out of the ordinary uh, and kind of overplaying that a little bit. And uh, Mills does make a case for the fact that uh, Evans Pritchard uh, gives some examples where it's more at the everyday level. Witchcraft is just at the everyday level, but that uh, Evans Pritchard overemphasizes the really exceptional cases. And so Mills is what Mills is trying to do is say, well, maybe we should think about it more at the everyday level um, and not so much at the exceptional level and just see what kind of happens if we do that. So that's sort of what um, 
uh, uh, Mills is sort of saying here uh, that we need it. It's part of everyday uh, fabric of society. Mills says on page 23, it's part of everyday expectation and craft. So I think that's a good, uh, important point to pick up on. And what I thought we could do to have a think about this, um, because Mills does give a couple of examples on page 23, I believe, from Evans Pritchard's text of, every day, of witchcraft being a bit more on the everyday, day-to-day -day level. And so I just thought it'd be helpful if we maybe watched a short little clip um, on YouTube, uh, if I can find it, um, just to kind of, as a visual and a, a way for us all to kind of talk about um, uh, this idea of the everyday. So hold on a sec, I've just... Um, pull up the video and get the link because um, I think where I've tried to share it, my screen it kind of goes a bit haywire so I'll put the link in the chat and just maybe watch the video up until about the two and a half minute mark and then we can come back and have a bit of a chat about it. Are we meant to be watching the pot throwing? Have I got the right video, Samson? Yeah, that's what we're meant oh. to be watching. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
we've got the gist of it by now. So um, now uh, that was sort of not arbitrary, and even though um, if it was Amy, it was like, are we meant to be watching this? But it relates to the fact that there was an example in the paper of the of the potter, right, who makes some pottery. And so I thought this was uh, interesting to think with this video. And, and I mean, I'm sure most of us kind of got the gist of it by about the 30 second mark, but I sort of made you watch it a bit longer because I think there's something to watching the craftsmanship that's going on here. And so what I wanted us to think about was what it is that is happening or what it takes to do what he's doing. And by that, I mean, you know, are we looking at someone who's just grabbed an old bit of clay slapped it down and just kind of doing whatever or what, what's, what's happening here? What goes into, into uh, making a vase in the way that he is doing it? Well, there's a certain craftsmanship to it, right? Like he's, and as I think was referred to in the um, reading, like you need that clay, you get rid of all of the impurities. There's a lot of preparation to doing that level of pottery and, um, that concentration and skill, you know, like that person is working from past experience to build this thing excellently, right? Yeah, that's great. So you're you're right. So even the, the the man in the in the clip said, "I've got to use a kind of harder type of clay for this." And you know, there's a sense that in this video, this is a very skilled craftsman, right? You know, he's able to do these things, and there's a certain sort of agency he has over it, right? And he's kind of methodical. There's a rhythm to it. There's, there's a control over it. So definitely, uh, 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 there. Let's say anyone else um, have some sort of thoughts about the activity that we just watched. Uh, it was clearly uh, practiced. Um, even though he states that he's making the, the Korean style, I think at the start he says something about that. Um, it's, it's a transferable skill almost. He's able to look at the shape um, and use practice and skilled um, craft to make it. Like Alyssa said, it was obvious that this guy uh, had done this type of action before uh, and that's something that in the paper is kind of explored um, in the original Evans Pritchard piece where he talks about the guy collecting the clay and everything um, and that he abstains from any kind of sexual intercourse um, and yet sometimes they break even through the handiwork of the potter. Now I was expecting that throw to go weird and and curve off um Me because too. of the context yes. that i was doing it at yeah because of the because of the context because i'd read the pieces and i was like what oh, is it going to be a witch but the difference between perhaps how that potter may have seen it he he looked at and said oh i need a heart of clay or whatever versus a zandy pot maker may or potter may view an error is not of their own practice because they've done it before and it's an accept, uh, an expected outcome, but because of witchcraft, where if that potter's pot had fallen, he would have been like, oh, it, I stuffed up. I think that's a, that's a distinction that was kind of pointed out there. Yeah. Thanks, Callum. Yeah, you're right. And uh, 
there's, uh, I mean, I suppose I could have found one where it went awry, but there's there's sort of a more of a reason why I just chose to stick with this one. Because as you say, and I think what's critical here, is he says, I'm going to make a Korean vase. So what I would suggest is that he has in his mind's eye this vase that he is going to create. There is a intention, critical intention behind that. And I'm going to will this into being. And what you note is that there's particular steps that he's taking. That's his craftsmanship. I've got to now, I've got to make it round at the bottom here now in order for it seven, you know, he's projecting himself into the future uh, to make this type of vase, right? And normally that probably goes according to plan. He can do it. And that's where the, the Azandi uh, example will, will, might draw on a bit, but I'll give, uh, we'll have a chance to have a talk. Yes, Kath? Oh, sorry. I, um, I feel like I put my hand up at the last thing. I think I was just going to say, I feel like for the Azandi, it was less of like, oh, if something goes wrong, it's witchcraft. It's more like, if I've done everything excellently and every time I've done it like this before, nothing's gone wrong and I've done everything I was supposed to do and somehow something still broke, that's when it's witchcraft. It's almost like, whereas in the West, we're a bit more like, you can do everything perfect. You can plan perfectly. You can execute perfectly. And sometimes shit just doesn't go your way. So then they're like, well, the reason that happens is witchcraft. There's a reason. It's not, you know, whereas we just kind of accept that sometimes it just doesn't happen. That's Rather right. than like, yeah, like they don't assign their own mistakes to witchcraft. They understand that, you know, sometimes you make a pot and it breaks. Sometimes you do this, but like when you do it all perfect, it doesn't just break. And they talked about like if a person dies suddenly, that just doesn't happen. That's against the laws of nature. There's a natural progression. It's when something that happens that breaks that natural progression that something else acted to make that break happen. Yeah. But I, that's how I understood it. I, I agree with you in that, Cass. I think there's this, um, the Azandi, um, worldview. I suppose in our worldview, there's causality, right? So, like, if something were to break or somebody were to die, that's just causality. But then, I don't know if I'm using that right. I hope I am. Um, but in the Azandi um, perception, the causality is witchcraft. So you can have concentration on something and do everything perfectly and within, like, the rites and the rituals of that culture, like abstaining from sex and all that kind of thing before doing something um, and be fully focused on that activity. But it almost seems to me that this, this conception of witchcraft is really emotional and it's, and it's based in um, like emotional intention. So if there's, if there's, like if somebody has witchcraft done to them or something goes wrong, that's in a sense like a hex, right? And from the text, what I got is that, that it's based in um, like other people's behavior kind of projected into that space. And that's why it's witchcraft. Um, and there's, I, there was a bit that I liked a sentence that was talking about how personhood as we conceive it is the result of a kind of casual attention um, that connects the bits and pieces of perception into an intentional narrative. And I feel like that's what's happening here with 
idea that if something yeah goes awry that it's witchcraft and somebody has it out for them or you know whatever yeah mm-hmm. yeah, yeah like think, if things mm-hmm. happen for a cause and something happens like if mm-hmm. I intend for it to go one way and mm-hmm. then it doesn't it means someone else has intended that alternative storyline or whatever yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think both of you have done such a great job to uh, to articulate uh, that um, because uh, what you're both sort of saying uh, is that uh, uh, there's a particular uh, uh, skilled uh, craftsmanship that goes behind this pottery and there's a, a particular intention that goes into it, an agency. And you, what you would sort of say is that... M- m- someone at this skill level would intend to create something and then that would be fulfilled most of the time, right? My skill level is I'm going to make a Korean vase and I can do that every single day. So then why is it on this one day when I've done it so many times before, it's broken. My intention hasn't fulfilled itself. And that's the kind of why question that then that's when witchcraft sort of comes in into the kind of mix of it and I think what's really critical that um, both you uh, Cass and Alyssa you mentioned there uh, Alyssa you talk about emotional intentionality but also intention and that's sort of what I'm sort of trying to uh, bring it back to this idea of intentionality because um, there's a certain intention that goes behind making something but likewise you know, um, I have my sets of intentions to carry out the day. Other people do too, right? And we can't know their kind of intentions. And sometimes that, those intentions might be ill-meaning, uh, right? And so I think this, what we've just spoken on here is, is great. And it really neatly brings us to my next uh, sort of point to consider is on page 25, uh, Mills introduce at the top, it introduces this idea of intentional sovereignty. Uh, and I just wanted to see um, what people, how people might have understood that uh, term or how what we've talked about might speak to that term or hazard a guess what they, what they think that might mean. Can I say something? I don't like semi unrelated but related to what you just said before the intentional sovereignty is I feel like I got the gist when I was reading it that like that sense of other people have intentions it's not always that other people have ill intentions I kind of got the sense that it's like you know I'm going about my day and I've got a plan of what I'm going to do and someone else is going about their day and they've got a plan of what they're going to do and sometimes our paths just collide or sometimes their plans interact with my plans you know like if when you're getting ready in the morning and you kind of like okay I'm gonna heat the kettle and then I'm gonna do this and do this and do that and then it's like you go to do thing number three but someone's in the way of you and it's not that they're intentionally in the way it's not that they intentionally had a shower when you were planning to brush your teeth it's just it just kind of happened (laughs) you know I feel like that's kind of understood and the people that go around completely disregarding everybody else and they and they only do their own intentions. Those are the people with, with the mango or the witchcraft, whereas most people like, you know, like when you're driving and you see someone about to cut you off, like that, you know, you're aware of what they're doing so you avoid a crash. 
but like somebody, if there are two people extremely unaware, that's going to cause a crash. Is that, I feel like that's kind of the gist I got from it. That's I don't great. Know if that's no, no. Intentional sovereignty or not. It does. It does. <laughs> oh, You've yes. really kind of, kind of explained that from a different angle because I think what you're describing here, uh, you're right, is that you have a set of intentions. Um, that you might carry out. You get up in the day, even to the minute detail, I'm going to pick up this jug and pour myself a glass of water. And, you know, uh, that's going to happen. That's my intention. Um, and, but we have a whole set that how we carry out our day. But other people do too. And we can't always be sure what other people's intentions are. And maybe they will kind of collide. So, this, so the idea of intentional sovereignty is this idea of my sort of intentions um, and how far they sort of stretch, like, like sovereignty meaning um, you're a command over something. If you think about the sovereignty of a government, what territory they control. So my intentions and that kind of field around them and my sort of sovereignty around them, what I know my, I can do and what my intentions are. Um, and you can understand that in respect to the potter as well. He has his own field of intentions. And, but you're right, Cass, because what's interesting to note is that so does somebody else have their own field of intentions and those are going to kind of uh, uh, interact and they're going to kind of disrupt uh, potentially one another. Um, and so, yeah, I think some of the examples you just gave there, Cass, are really great. And I, I suppose I'd like to just maybe open that up a little bit more. Uh, you know, certainly, uh, you know, there's kind of certain practices people, you know, like to set their intention for the day or, um, you know, do meditational practice or manifest what they want or ask the universe. Other people in other seminars have talked about things like, don't say that, you're going to jinx it. So I just wonder how we can think about how intentions, these kind of immaterial kind of things, can actually affect our world and if we can think of any of our own examples uh, of that uh, kind of idea playing out. I, I was thought about how, um, with Andy talking about how other people's intent and sort of... Um, consciousness or energy field so to speak you know can impact and, and ripple into yours how there's a, the similarity to Hindu concepts of karma and reincarnation and so it's not other people but it's yourself in past situations and in past lives and past incarnations extend there and ripple and can impact on your experiences and what is attracted into your life and experience from there too. And also um, people having um, lucky charms and little rituals before sporting events or their um, uh, uh, the evil eye things to, to wear, all those, all those different charms and things we wear to ward off or attract. Yeah. Yep. There's some great examples there. And I, I really like the example of the energy field. I think that's a good concept, a way to conceptualize this kind of field of intentions. Um, and um, certainly the idea of the evil eye is a, is a great one as well. And I know there's other kind of protective crystals, which is a, simply about warding off other people's energies. You know, uh, someone might have some bad energy, right? Or certainly the yeah, evil eye. And mm. Maybe even like I'm um, doing people doing like Reiki or energy healing or anything. It's the, it's the same thing, it's, but it has a positive and directed 
intent, good intent, positive intent, but it's still that idea of there being some background consciousness, that primacy of consciousness that's before just physicality and beyond just physicality that interacts. And you find that everywhere. Yeah, that's the critical point I really think here is that, uh, uh, yeah, there's all Mills is at the heart of what Mills is saying as well in this article, but more so in the well, as well as in the other article that's a recommended reading. He's saying this intentionality is so common, but it's this immaterial thing. What is it? You can't really kind of the, the physical hard sciences can't give you a reason to like what's the intention of what do you how do you qualify my intention to pick up my glass? There's a kind of immateriality about it. And but Mills is sort of saying it's at the everyday level. So we should think about it like that. And witchcraft is a part of that. But yeah, there's these the the and intentions uh have resonance uh outcomes in the world. We all know that. So likewise, um uh, other people's intentions can impact on us. And it's they might not even really uh realise they might just feel a bit jealous towards you, you know, and you talk about the evil eye. Uh, it's certainly in Sri Lanka, uh, you know, they have this practice where they'll put some black paste, uh, make an incarnation on a, a small child's head to because the child's young and it just warrants the jealousy of other people. It's this young little child. And that's not to say that I'm surrounded by a whole bunch of horrible, jealous people. It's just the nature of this kind of youth. And we need to kind of ward kind of against that. And uh, so that, that, that sense of intentionality uh, playing out in the world. Melania? Yeah, no, that's so interesting, especially with the, um, the whole intention idea and the Azandi, I feel like, um, because they place so much importance on intention, they tend to suspect their like closest family first, because like who else outside of like their closest circle would you know want to cause them harm or know knows them enough to want to do that. And then I remember when um, in there was this part when he was talking about oh, uh, hold on when he was talking about when he was walking up the mountain path with the with the Buddhist I think. Um, yeah, and he was saying like, uh, oh, I feel like it's gonna, the weather's gonna be really bad. And then like when the weather was bad, they were like, oh, look what you've done. The weather's bad now, <laughs> like, because you said that. So I feel like just the idea of that. And then I really feel like you were saying, you know, how it, um, it, uh, connects to manifestation. And I felt like, oh, is the law of attraction the, the one way you like think something is gonna happen and the more you think it, it will come true? I feel like that all ties into like intentionality. And I felt like that was really um, uh, the, just the importance that they put on it. It's just like, it makes them think that the more they think it's gonna happen, the more it will happen, you know? So I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's some really great insights there. And yeah, certainly in sort of uh, my notes in regard to, um, uh, eliciting conversation in the in the seminar. Uh, the next thing I was about to mention was, um, you know, the examples of the weather phenomena. So it's great that you picked up on that because that's such a great example, isn't it, of when he's sort of like, oh, look, it's looking a bit sort of bad. Like, do we really want to be sleeping out there? And they're like, shh. And then, yeah, it's like, look what you've done. So there's a sense that um, 
you know, your intentions have real world actions. Um, and but it, I think what uh, as well as what you've hinted to, Melania and Amy certainly was there's a sense of consciousness that belies that though, right? It's not sort of willy nilly. Um, you could almost see that the weather has some sort of like a- agency, right? Um, uh, and so you 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 can interact in, interact in in that respect. Yes, Cass. Um, I feel like I remember the rain one, and I remember I feel like they um he said something like, you know, they were all grumpy at them, and they they made extra efforts to make it miserable, like they didn't try to make the best of it. And I'm like, I can relate. Where I'm like, you see something bad coming, and you're like, just don't say it. We we're aware of it. We're not saying it. Don't jinx it. Don't say nothing. Um, but like internally, you you like making calculations. Um, but I also, I just found it interesting because I feel like with intention, um, what you focus on mentally, it actually, like the power of expectation and like placebo and that kind of thing where it's like, if you're expecting something good to happen, it's more likely good will happen. If you choose, you know what, it's going to be a good day today. I don't care what's going to happen. It's going to be a good day. You have that belief and all of a sudden, you do, you personally do all these micro things that make it a good day. You smile at people and then they smile back and interact better. You initiate conversation, you know, like it actually, your intention actually physically changes things as well. And there's a whole conversation about like, you know, the cause and effect and the interaction and stuff. Um, but it's like, I just find it interesting with the weather. It's like, okay, cool. It was rainy and cold, but they also made no effort for it to still be good. They were pissed off because he did it and so they stayed pissed off and they made it a bad time. Whereas they could have been like, shut up. And if he had a shut up, maybe they would have been like, oh, good one. Look what you've done. I guess we'll make the best of it. You know, like it's, yeah, I don't know. It's like it's if you come, I feel like there's so much to be said for that. Like when you, you judge, especially working in customer service, I see it all the time where you look at someone and you're like, oh, they're going to be a pain in the ass. And it's like, did I recognize that everyone who's always a pain in the ass looks like that? Like, was that me, like my brain recognizing lots of little nonverbal cues and being like, oh, here we go. Or did I also cause that situation because I was already like, oh, here we go. And then they've reacted to me who's reacted back to them and they reacted, you know, like there's, I don't know, I feel like that's the whole thing. Yeah, I think that's. Um, I think you're right in 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 the sense of like uh, setting up your your own intention. You're creating a kind of uh, and 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 very clearly like yeah, of course your intentions relate to physicality and how you comport yourself. I think that's what um, uh, Mills at some points is sort of trying to really drive home is that this kind of intentionality uh, ha- act, is active in the world. Um, um, uh, and the other thing I think, which I think might be a good segue to speak about this, Cass, is that you're talking about customer service and kind of understanding like someone's intentions. Oh, I've got this little sign that oh, this is going to be really difficult to think about because that sort of brings us into the space of where uh, Mills starts to reconsider the nature of personhood in respect to this material. Because at one point he says um, on page 29, we don't experience a person in a direct way. 
And so I just wanted to maybe, I might read that quote verbatim, uh, at the top of page 29 after his re, re jeeped, um Evans Pritchard's little uh, quote there, he says a couple of lines down, we do not after all experience persons in any direct sensory way. What do you think he sort of means by that? Would it be like we don't, like our senses are our own senses and we don't get sensory input from them in that we never truly actually really know what they're feeling, meaning, thinking, saying, but like we, we're constantly interpreting it like, oh, when I make that face, I feel like this, therefore they must feel like this. Is that like there's that intermediary? Yeah, that definitely, definitely comes into it. So, uh, you know, he's talking about the kind of concept, right, of the person, like, um, I experienced you as a human being, right? But this person is the kind of concept, right? So I never really kind of experience a person. But what I do experience is um, some particular behaviours and attentions and particular like things um, that then make me sort of try to predict your intentions. Like you said, Cass, like, I don't know, you know, you're saying in customer service, I don't know what it is. Sometimes like, they, some person just comes to me and I have a look on their face and then I'm just sort of prepared that their intentions are going to be really annoying. They're going to be really difficult. So then I, I'm already constructing a sort of narrative that tries to kind of interpret and anticipate their intentions, right? What do, do does that sort of make sense, people? What do other people think about that, that idea of not experiencing an actual person? Callum, yep. Um, I think what Cass said was pretty accurate to how I kind of interpreted that quote as well. Um, and it kind of adds to the conversation about personhood in the sense that Due to our own hegemonic and our own hegemonic societies and views, we see certain actions as a certain identifier of people or of of them as a person. Um, for example, facial expression. Um, and I don't have a source for this. I can't remember because I saw it so long ago. But there was a psychologist that did a thing on facial expression of races. Um, of opposite racial groups to the people that they were testing. And a lot of the time, these people, usually, we, instead of saying racial, we can say social or cultural, would misinterpret those facial expressions to be other emotions or intentions, let's say. Um, and it that kind of uh, brought that up in my mind that we aren't perceiving a person in sensory way, we're perceiving a person from our own standpoint and our own determinations, our own preconceived ideas of what makes a person. And we all do that individually, but also are influenced by our society's ideas of personhood. And that's why the argument around witchcraft being uh, more exceptional than it is to the Zandi damages the discussion on uh, what Evans Pritchard was trying to, to point out. 
yeah, I think you've really kind of hit it there. Uh, uh, you're right. We can pick up on certain things that are particular to your human materialness. Um, but like you say, we can miss it. We, we're trying to understand someone's intentions and we have a particular schema for that. But we're, we're, we're constructing it as we go. I'm trying to get all of your t intentions to kind of make sense. I'm creating a narrative about you. And it, that, that doesn't even have to be, and Nils uh, 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 was trying to say, that's, that's not always just about being a human either. There's intentions elsewhere that you're just kind of constructing that and it's an organizational activity that's going on there around uh, understanding someone that, that's he says. Yeah, Melania. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with like everything you guys are saying. Um, I just wanted to like kind of like put this quote out when he said, um, indeed a person as a human mind conceives it is nothing like a human being any more than the color green is like grass. Does that kind of mean like what, what you guys are saying, which is like it's only a part of like the whole of what a human being is? Like a person is only a part of what a human being is as a whole. Is that what he's kind of saying? Or like, yeah, what do you guys think? Uh, I, I'm happy to set something there. Yeah, I think, I think you're right is that, um, uh, and I think what Amy's just put in the chat there uh, speaks to something, sort of what you were sort of saying there, Melania, is that, yeah, the, really they're just sort of uh, sets of intentions, right, uh, that we're trying to understand. Uh, and uh, uh, it doesn't have to be relative to a person, just like it's, you know, you know, green is most likely to be with grass or person is most likely to be with human. But what we're getting here is a different type of categorization of personhood, uh, which is about, um, yeah, just trying to understand other people's intentions. And in the, in the instance why, by talking about witchcraft at the everyday level, this is about me having my own intentions and a narrative around that, how they're going to be carried out. I'm going to do this thing and then I'm going to carry it out. Well, when that doesn't happen, it must be just the interception or the, in, the effect of someone else's intentions. But I'm not, I might not sure who it is and their intentions might change the next moment. So I can't really like, you know, it's not about witches. There's a whole bunch of witches around. It's just that what I, that's what I call it. Um, and um, it might not even be human. Um, but I just construct this narrative that sort of tries to make sense of the nature of these interactions, uh, these intentions that are affecting me or that I'm encountering. So personhood is about making coherent all these different sets of intentions that I'm kind of encountering. So it changes from moment to moment, from context to context is his sort of point around that. Kath? Um, I feel like that quote, um of like that persons are no longer exactly human than grass, the green is exactly grass. I feel like that helps us to understand as well how we attribute personhood to corporations and to animals and all that kind of stuff where we're like, you know, every or ev most every human is a person, but not every person is necessarily human. 
that was my comment. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's right. And I think he, uh, Mills gives some really great examples towards the end where he talks about how, you know, Vladimir Putin can go and sign a deal with someone and that that's Russia signing a deal. But then he goes and has lunch with his friends and that's not Russia going and having lunch with Sweden. That's just Putin having friend, uh, lunch with his Swedish friend. So that speaks to this kind of contextual nature of personhood um, and how it's an organizing principle um, and it shifts and chains and we can kind of understand that, right? You know, I, I was just recently uh, on the news the other day, you know, Crown Casino in Victoria is in, in, in trouble and he said, it's one of the lawyers was like, um, we still need to understand, um, you know, uh, the, the kind of ramifications for this person's actions. He was talking about Crown Casino, but he's in the court of law, and that's how Crown, that's how Crown is understood in the court of law. It's a person. Um, so yeah, that's kind of uh, you know this kind of he's that's what Mills is trying to sort of bring to light. But he's working with his Andy and talking about uh, witchcraft as well, about intersub uh, intersub into intersubjectivity and intentionality, how they kind of cross over, and that can be considered witchcraft. Does anyone have any more thoughts or anything they want to kind of get clear or I kind of just like to ask a question. Is that kind of saying that for personhood to be applied, there must be an intentionality to something's actions? So in the examples that we've had previously of the Yakir or the Badi and Jawi people, are the things that they personify, do they have their own intentions and that helps them become classified as people or is that, again, applying kind of uh, ethnocentric view or uh, applying a different view of another, another group of people, Zandi in this instance, to, to that kind of definition of personhood? Right, so this is a very good insight and very critical. And um, I hope people who haven't been able to come to this seminar get a chance to watch this because this is important. Because this is this is very abstract thinking, conceptual thinking, but it is not, there's limitations to it. It's not just willy-nilly. Uh, so remember for the Yuki gear, um, all inanimate objects had an Ayibi, but things with consciousness had more than one. And so there is a sense that intentionality come, ha, has at its basis consciousness. It's sort of implied in the term. So you'd, you could then make a case that personhood has, has a particular correlation with consciousness. And that's something that you're pointing out, Callum. I'm not saying that. That's an observation you've made. Um, but that kind of formation of consciousness does differ, doesn't it? you know, because we think about it differently than some others. But it's not just any old thing's personhood, right? And and it's not the case in this reading either that that's what's happening as well. Is that helpful for people to think about? Good. Well, um, I think we've sort of hit the kind of time mark. Um, I just wanted to maybe, does anyone have any other questions, qualms, 
or queries about the reading or about the course or anything more broadly they want to ask me while they've got the opportunity. Yep. I have a question about the assignment, mm. if that's okay. Mm -hmm. um, with the, the photo thing, um, I'm very sorry if we already covered this last week, um, but uh, I've just been looking at it more deeply this week, trying to get it done. And I was mm -hmm. just wondering, like with the rubric, it's obviously you want to be seen that we're um, – that we're like connecting with the material that you're giving us, and I'm just wondering if it's like um, how how in depth that needs to be, and whether it's like you know we talked about how um, defining humanity and personhood in the you know the Bali, Zadi, and Jali, like how they you know Earth has personality and how how um, how it's like, um, you. Know, I feel like the one I'm thinking of is like how a part of a person is symbolic of the whole person or two people with the same name were the same person. Like, are, are you looking for us to capture those kind of ideas in photos, hmm. like specifically? Or? So uh, not really because that would be quite hard to capture, wouldn't it? But you can, you can, you can take a photo <laughs> yeah. that, that just allows you to think about it you might find an image that prompts you to think about that concept or you could almost make a contrast. You could have a photo where you're like, um, you know, this is this and I have this particular relation to it, which is very different to the Bardi and Jawi and they might think about it like that. And that's still a chance for you to show your knowledge on it. So it doesn't have to be um, I'm going to go and capture what country means to the Bardi and Jawi, you might just be like, this is a really special place for me and I really like it, but uh, that's pretty different to me liking it is different to how what we've read about uh, these people would think about it. So that's probably a good way to do it. So yeah. like a specific example could be like, I live on the Gold Coast. There's a place called Talbadru River with a mountain to me, like, I've grown up around here. I love swimming there. It's beautiful. It's relaxing, blah, blah, blah. Um, to the Bundjalung Nation, there's a whole story, and that mountain is actually a giant, and there's this one part where you can see his fingers. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Yeah, that's great. That would be a really good example. And then you could sort of then speak about the fact that, um, you know, uh, that's, a, that's a sense of personhood assigned to that, which is really radically different than the one that I have and you can elucidate that. Um, so look, what I would actually say, that's fine. Um, and what I would actually say because of the lockdown again, that's just happened, um, just, you know, we're going to be really pushing it for some of us to go out into the world and take photos. So, um, you know, as I said, I'll just reiterate the fact that you can take photos from um, the internet or elsewhere if you need to, that's fine. Just make sure that you acknowledge the source where you've taken it from. Uh, yeah. Great. Well, if that's sort of it, um, obviously I've all my, I'm always um, available to be emailed or whatever if you have any questions or qualms as we as we move closer to the assignment or whatever, you know, whatever you need, let me know. Um, but yeah, great to see you all again. And um, always enjoy this seminar and um, I look forward to seeing you next week.
Thanks. Thanks. Bye. 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 Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. Bye.